0: Hey guys, welcome back to Trust God, bro. This is day four of the 12 Days of Christmas, or Christ-centered, miss, I mean. The the 12 Days of Christmas actually first appeared in print for the first time in 1780. It was supposed to be a poem or chant without music, and later it was adapted to music. Well, um, get ready for the fourth day of um, relishing and reflecting on the gospel. So, according to PNC. If you took every item on the list and bought it from the 12 days of Christmas, it'd be $38,000 or 170000 if you bought each time repeated. So, uh, like I say, that's a lot of money. <laughs> and, I mean, even more than true love, true love kiss, we need the gospel. And so this is what it's all about. We're, we're spending each day to spend a little time just together to talk about what it means to trust God and his attributes. And each day will be a different attribute of God. And at the end, we'll have a couple of discussion questions for you or a friend to think and talk about. And get ready. This is the fourth day. day, Okay, there we go. So, sorry, I had to play that song. Reliant K, it's a great song and it just gets me amped for um, Christmas and the 12 days of Christmas. (laughs) Anyways, this is the fourth day. Trust God's sovereignty. And, um, when, when you hear about this, um, the, the sovereignty of God, this, this attribute is a little bit different than the other ones we've been talking about. This is an incommunicable attribute of God which means that this is an attribute of God that only God has. This is not a, a communicable attribute. The rest of the attributes we talk about are communicable, which means that they are things that we, God's creation, can have also. And I, when we talk about sovereignty, it's the first thing you probably think of is probably not heartwarming. You're probably not thinking about, oh man, I just want to, like, just it's not like grace, you know, or God's love and, These things that our hearts um, sometimes feel warm to. And you probably think of the Arminian-Calvinism divide, but I think an appropriate view of God's purposeful sovereignty in creation and in your personal life will lead to worship. And that's the whole goal of this. I mean, all of our theology is meant to lead us to doxology, which is the praise of God. And um, yeah, so that's why we're doing this. And it's the goal of this Christmas Advent, for you to see more of the gospel and more depth to different sides of God's character. So the gospel is like a diamond. You take it and rotate it, and you see new wonders shine and sparkle. To only look at one side is to see a triangle. To not view one part of the gospel, let's say God's sovereignty, for example, is to lose part of the beauty of God our ultimate goal is to fall out of love with the world and fall in love with God. So the last thing we want to do is see less of the beauty of God. When we begin to discuss salvation and God's goodness, it would be removing a part of the gospel to skip over God's sovereignty. And I think Job um, is, is a great place to start when we're talking about God's sovereignty. And so that's where the, the meat of our meditation will be on. So when our, when our heart's, are geared towards consumerism and self, and a good dose of purposeful sovereignty in the face of hard times is extremely good for us. And that's just our culture that we breathe, consumerism, um, it's about ourselves. and um, You could probably recite the story of Job by heart if I asked you to retell it. However, do you know the heart of God in Job? It's what you call bitter providence in the life of Job. Job is 42 chapters, so when you start to find out, there's a lot of hidden gems about God and life in it. It's easy just to skim over it. I mean, you think, I mean, as they he had some hard times, and his friends come, kind of not really help him. His wife tells him to die. He's like, man, God is good, and God is like, hey, uh, this was for your good. And... Uh, it kind of just ends. But the, in the heart of it, you can learn so much about perseverance as we hold to God's goodness, especially in difficult times. Let's get some background on Job. So, so let's we'll start. Job was a really godly guy. He would wake up early and offer burnt offerings to consecrate them for his kids. So Job 1.5 says, When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, his kids. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. I mean, in the first verse, this is literally the description of Job. Job 1.1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, that's quite a title. I mean, what happened, and um, just to start, a lot happened to Job. Start thinking about what Job um, had going against him at this time. So um, dead, everyone he loved lost. Everything he had, he was alone. His closest friends and wife, were. his relationships were full of pain. His whole body, this is the position that we find him in. When his friends first came to him, they literally sat without speaking for seven days. But when his friends talking begins, it's a blame battle on Job. You sinned. You need to kill yourself. Curse God every once in a while, one of them might have a portion of truth, but for the most part, it's a pretty pitiful battle. So Job really had a war on his emotions. He says, Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut my, off my life, that I would be still have this consolation, my joy and unrelenting pain, that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have? What should I still hope? What prospects that I should be patient, and so this is um, just Job being raw about his life, and he really just wants God to um, crush him. And it's—I mean—you can just see he's being honest here. He is hurting a lot, and it reminds me of a um, there was a night when I had a really bad headache, and um, I'm going to sound like a pansy for this, but I was—I was literally like in tears, and kind of like Job here, not on the level, but. I said, I'm I'm bed. My head's in so much pain. I'm like, God, take me out. I'm done. And it shows us that he doesn't have this perfect perseverance and hope. Job doesn't. He, it's not perfect. You know, he's he's really not. You see it in his life. But he keeps straining to see more of God despite his weakness. It says this, but he said to her, Job says to his wife, you should speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall not receive evil. And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job 2.10 sees that God was sovereign over his suffering. For some good reason, Job knew God was doing this. It wasn't meaningless. It was working for a purpose, to show us more of God And to show us a conquering over death, to show us the gospel, to help other sufferers. I don't know all the reason why, but it is a promise that all suffering for Christians are producing a greater weight of glory. If you are a Christian, all suffering is purposely placed. So coming to the last chapter of Job, you see Job say something about God's sovereignty that stands out. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Um, he, he claims this, and it's true. Crossway Publications describe the sovereignty of God in this scene like this. In his second speech, the Lord asks Job particularly about power in relation to himself and other creatures he has made. Job, directly aware of God as never before, responds by humbly submitting to God's sovereignty and despising himself for his earlier wild words. While Job had rightly defended himself against his friends' accusations of sin and had defined his circumstances as being governed by God, he had drawn conclusions about what his affliction meant that did not account sufficiently for what was hidden in the knowledge and purposes of God. And so you see that in God's sovereignty, he is working this all and since his, he is so much more wiser, it, it is purposefully placed and his sovereignty is perfect. Uh, it, it's good for us. So more lessons from Job. Job 112. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Uh, this shows us one thing that God is sovereign over Satan. And he it's everything that happens. And is under God's sovereignty, even Satan. And so there are so many other sides to the providence of God, and I am merely looking at it from the point of God being purposeful over your suffering. But with more Bible study, you could dig deep into the riches of God's purposeful sovereignty and creation. You could look into why he created music to flow through the way it does. Purposeful sovereignty and salvation how he used the very Jews that the messiahs came from to crucify him and in God's sovereignty saving uh, the sovereignty of God behind the dust molecules. The sovereignty of God is everywhere because at the most basic understanding of it, God's sovereignty is his kingship. He is king over everything. There is nothing nowhere that he does not touch and do as he wills simply because he is God and he is great. This is where our hope comes from, in the rock of Jesus Christ. So I, I think the sovereignty of God can be a scary thing, but we find all the sovereignty of God coming together to a great and melodious orchestra. It's, it's just coming together and it's part of God's glory and his attributes to the praise of his glory. Like Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, God's sovereignty is sweet, like when we see that it comes together at the perfection of a Savior who stepped down from his throne to let the waves of sovereignty crush him. But as Jesus rises from that wave, he merely has a bruised heel, and the wave has crushed the devil's head. And God's sovereignty, that is what happens. And the wave of sovereignty is working for all of creation's good through the life of Christ. At the end of the tunnel of God's sovereignty is all of his attributes rejoicing and coming together, his wisdom with his justice, his wrath with with his mercy, his kindness with his love, with his beauty and glory, all coming together to rejoice in this perfection of who God is. So much so, when you look back on that day with perfected eyes, you can't believe how God would be so good to you through it to bring you to the greatest glory of knowing him. So for some discussion questions, I wanted to ask, does God's sovereignty please God? Does God like being sovereign? And the second question, how have you seen the providence of God in your life? Think about 2020 and how in God's providence coronavirus has changed your plans, given you a new job, or placed you elsewhere. Um, So think about God's providence in your life and reflect on that. So um, in conclusion, I just want to thank you for listening to Day 4 of the 12 Days of Christ-Centered Miss. Somehow, I wrote this whole meditation, and I still can't spell sovereignty right. If you like listening to this stuff about sovereignty, John Piper just wrote a huge book called Providence, which is about God's purposeful sovereignty. Thanks to my brother, Derek Rumbled, for his awesome intro and outro. Listen to his music by typing in Sounds from the Outside, Bandcamp, into Google. And again, thanks for listening to this Christ-Centered Miss episode and um, that's how you trust god's sovereignty bro